His name was Robert Earl Green. He graduated, he was my friend, graduated from Purvis High School in 1969. Robert Earl Green um, immediately went to Vietnam. And on May the 12th, he stepped on a landmine, May the 12th, 1970, and ended his life. It was kind of our first exposure to Vietnam. But when they brought Bobby's uh, body back for the funeral, we could not even open the casket because that's the nature of a landmine. We've been talking for quite a while about, about landmines. Last night we had a, one of our men's meetings, and uh, after... after kind of absorbing all the things on the men's meeting and having been challenged by one of our men to speak on this subject. This morning at about 6.15, I couldn't go back to sleep. I wanted to sleep a few more minutes, couldn't go back to sleep. So I got up and I came to the office about 6.30 and began to, to pray through about tonight. And it seemed to me that tonight that the Lord was leading me to include this as our last landmine. And that landmine, you're going to say, we don't have that problem. If you say that, just kind of thinking about it. But I believe this landmine does more damage to the body of Christ than in others. And, and when, I, when I tell you what it is in just a second, some may say, well, no, that's not for us. And yet, for those who really sit back and, are, and who are taking a leadership role and are Counseling the pastor and things like this, it seems there may be some evidence that we need to hear this landmine. It's well hidden, stays well hidden. If it's to be effective, it's easily ignited. Such is the case of the landmine of animosity. Now, animosity. It's defined as a deep-seated feeling or, or spirit of ill will and resentment. In fact, animosity comes from the Latin word animus, and that animus means mind and body, mind and spirit. And it's kind of like when something troubles you in your mind and spirit and you become, become consumed with negative feelings toward something or someone else, and it, and it develops. And, you know, the truth is we can find animosity all through the Bible. Cain had so much animosity for Abel. Now think about, think about that story. Abel did nothing to Cain. Think about that. Abel held a grudge in his heart against his brother, anger in his heart against his brother, because God did something for Abel as opposed to Cain. And his animosity got so strong, his anger got so strong, you know the result. Ultimately, he killed his brother. And some of us will say, well, I'm not going to kill anybody. Well, I'll refer you to 1 John chapter 3.15. Now, don't turn there now. That's not where we're going. Just write it down. 1 John 3.15 says, If we hate our brother, it is the same as being a murderer. 
But we don't just have to stop at Cain. We can go on over into the story of Joseph and his brothers. Those ten brothers had animosity toward Joseph. Now, some of us can make an argument that they had reason. Joseph appeared to be a tattletale as a young person. That's when he is introduced as a 17-year-old. And yet, it seems that the report, the evil, bad report that Joseph gave, that a that Joseph gave to Jacob was an accurate report. And those brothers had much to learn. We don't just have to stop there. We can scoot on over into Esther, and we can see the story of Mordecai and Haman. Haman. Now, you you remember that Haman was given this position in the country, and everybody was supposed to bow to him, and Mordecai wouldn't do it. So Haman put together this plan where all the Jews would be killed. In fact... He was targeting Mordecai, and when, the, and when uh, Esther stepped up and the king saw him for what he was, Mordecai, uh, Haman wound up being hung on the same gallows that he had built for Mordecai. May I just say this to us? When we walk in animosity, when we walk in anger and hostility toward one another, there is a good chance it's going to backfire and we'll get hanged on the same gallows that we meant for somebody else. Now, we can go on. I think I've made the point. We can go to David and Saul, which we will in a second. We can go to Esau and Jacob. We can even take it all the way through to the New Testament, the Pharisees and Jesus. Animosity is seen all the way through the Bible. Now, tonight, I want us to just pick out a snippet of the conflict between David and Saul. You see the scripture up there? It's 1 Samuel 18. If um, I didn't look to see what page it was on in the uh, Pew Bible, if you will turn there. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand because we're going to read an extended passage. What page is it on, Leslie? You still getting there? That's in the Old Testament. Two. 242, okay? 242. Let me read this for us and get the scripture in front of us. Now, let me set it up for you. David, young David, has already been anointed king by Samuel. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is where David stood and defeated Goliath. That's where you find the David and Goliath story. And it's also David is already in the, uh, in the uh, um, throne room of um, Saul, and he is playing his harp for him. And yet when he, uh, um, when he defeats the Philistine, um, Saul really has a face-to-face encounter with him. And then, verse 1, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of of the soldiers, that was probably a field command, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. 
As David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. As they celebrated, the women sang, Saul has killed thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more could he have but the kingdom? So, Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day, an evil spirit from God took control of Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the harp as usual, but Saul was holding a spear. And he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left from Saul. Therefore, Saul reassigned David and made him commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Saul told David, here is my oldest daughter, Merib. I'll give her to you as a wife if you'll be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, my hand doesn't need to be against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Then David responded, Who am I and what is my family and my, or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? When it was time to give Saul's daughter Merib to David, she was given to Adriel the Moholite as a wife. Now, Saul's daughter Michael loved David And when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistine will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, You can now be my son-in-law. Saul then ordered his servants, Speak to David in private and tell him, Look, the king is pleased with you, and all his servants love you. Therefore... You should become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servant reported these words to David, but he replied, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I am a poor man who is common. The servants reported back to Saul. These are the words David spoke. Then Saul replied, Say this to David, The king desires no other bribe, bribe price except a thousand Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hands of the Philistines. When the servants reported these terms to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as full payment to the king to become his son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter, Michael, to David as his wife. Saul realized that the Lord was with David 
and that his daughter, Michael, loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. And every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's soldiers. So his name became very famous. Let's pray together. Father, I pray tonight that as we delve into your word, I pray that the teaching will be from you. I pray your word will speak to our hearts. I pray that you'll prick us at the very point of our need. Lord, we need you more than ever before. Thank you for your word. In your name, amen. Truth is, you could take this chapter and bind it into a book, and it would probably become a bestseller. Because of the deceit, the lying, the fear, the battle, and the like. And yet what leaps out this page is what we're studying tonight, animosity. We find Saul in deep animosity toward David. And what did David do? He simply followed God. Let's discuss tonight, I want to give it to you in four little thoughts, Just and you'll pardon me with my cough drop in my mouth, four thoughts, go ahead Johnny, that we will share together about this landmine. I want to begin with the origin. Where in the world does animosity come from? Well, may I suggest to you, animosity, first of all, it just comes from us because we're fallen creatures. We're sinful. It is the curse of Adam and Eve. You know, in, in, in simple terms, it's our nature to be offended to take on this, to embrace this thing that we call animosity. But, but Brother Jerry, wouldn't you like to give us some things we can put our hands on? Well, yeah, I'm going to give you three. We find them, I think, here. The first one is jealousy. You can look back and you can see um, verse 9, Saul watched David jealously from this day forward. Does anybody in here need a lesson in what jealousy is? I don't think so. I think we've seen it. You know, jealousy was Cain becoming so jealous and angry that he killed his brother. The, the ten brothers of David, uh, ten brothers of Joseph, became so uh, uh, angry and holding such animus that they wanted to kill David. Do you remember that story? They were going to kill him, and one of them stepped up and said, "No, let's don't do that." The, the animus that Saul had toward David, I want you to think about this, led to Saul's own son turning against him. You see, animus, animosity is an ugly thing. And it's born in ugly things. You know, anytime a, anytime a person gets jealous, you know what you can know? That Satan's got a hand in their life. And when Satan's got a hand in their life, if you give him a toehold, he'll take a foothold, develop it into a stronghold, and you're sunk. And when we give him the room of holding animosity in our life, Satan's there. Count on it. The second thing that I suggest to you is unforgiveness. 
unforgiveness. Now, the reason unforgiveness seems to show up on all the list of problems for people it is because it is a problem for people. Hello? It's a problem for every one of us. Scriptures replete with calling us to forgive. Jesus said in Matthew, when he gave the, uh, uh, when he gave the model prayer, he said, forgive us this day uh, our daily bread. And, and, and he says, to explain that, he says, you'll only be forgiven as you forgive. You see, Jesus tied our forgiveness to somebody else. Colossians says essentially the same thing. You see, it's a sad day in the family of God. It's a sad day in the family of God when a body and a people is torn apart by animosity arising out of jealousy and or unforgiveness. You know, it's, it's real easy to hang on to those hurtful, hard feelings when they happen to us. But you know, the thing that we need to know is that God does not want us to hold unforgiveness. God does not want us to feel animosity toward a brother or sister or anybody else. It is a bad, it's a bad rep on his gospel. So I want you to just think yourself, just for a second. Let's pause here just for a second. Is there somebody in your life that you got a, that you got a grudge against? That you're harboring your will or resentment? How did it get started? Did it get started with jealousy? Did it get started with getting hurt and you just can't seem to forgive them? Or did it start with pride? With pride. Boy, when you, when you read this story, you can see the pride looming over Saul. He was offended that those women, and I, I thought today as I was making this, as I was developing this, I thought, you know, that would be a good point to make it a little lighthearted and say, you know, the women are going to go sing the wrong song and he's going to get mad. They sang, David's kill, uh, Saul's killed a thousand, David can Why couldn't they just say, they, they won? Why didn't they just sing that? You understand what I'm telling you? But he, was, he had a lot of pride. He wanted the credit. Same thing with Haman. He wanted Mordecai to bow down, and Mordecai didn't. Pride and jealousy and self-promoting and the like is the way to get ourselves hanged on our own gallows and where it starts. Now, there's a lot of other places we could go, but those are three pretty ugly things according to Scripture, the origin. The second thing that I'd bring you to is a, uh, in this land mind is the operation. How does it operate? You know, if you're going to, if you find a landmine like pride or jealousy or insecurity or animosity, if you find a landmine and you're going to try to deactivate that thing, you better know how it works. Agreed? Hello? Amen? Yes? All right, we're, we're awake. Well, let me, tell you, let me tell you how I see animosity working in the hearts of believers. The first thing that I would suggest to you is that it controls. It controls us. Now, don't you just like it when the preacher reads something and you go, Whoa, that don't sound right. Look at verse 10. The next day an evil spirit from who? 
The next day, an evil spirit from God took control of Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. An evil spirit from God. Now, has anybody got your uh, scratch of your noggin right now? Because the evil spirit from God, something, something doesn't quite sound right about that. Here's what I will say to you is that it doesn't say an evil spirit of God. Or it doesn't say the evil spirit of God. It says the evil spirit from God. Now, you remember from uh, Job chapter 1 that when Satan appeared to God, he had to get permission from God before he could go attack Job. You remember that? Hello? Thank you. And so basically what he is saying is that this... Now, there's a lot of conjecture about this. Let's, Let's be fair. There's a lot of conjecture about this. But I want to clear it up for you. If you will turn back, if you have your Bible, turn back to the 16th chapter. To me, this clears this up about what happens to Saul. The 16th chapter, right after Samuel anoints David, verse 14, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord began to torment him. The thing is, is that the Spirit of the Lord had to leave before the spirit, before that evil spirit could take over. Because here's what I'll tell you. Anytime, anytime a life is empty of God, Satan is right there with his evil spirit. And he's asking God's permission. And as they understood it, and in the life of Job, is that whatever came into our lives had to pass by the approval of God. But when that evil got into his life, it took control of Saul. And you know what happens when he takes control of you? It'll cause you to rant and rave. It'll cause you to do things that you have never done before. It'll cause you to be evil and speak evil. And you know why? Because it not only controls you, number two, it corrupts you. When animosity gets deep-seated and we hang on to it and we embrace it, it begins to to corrupt how we think. Can you think, and I want you to just consider this. I know we read those 30 verses quickly. Can you think of anything more corrupt than a dad dangling his daughters in front of a soldier for political gain. You see, when that evil spirit of animosity grew in Saul, nothing was off limits. Because all of a sudden he didn't think right. And I've told you before, I hope you remember, is that when we have sin in our lives, we don't think right. We don't process right. We see everything through the shades of our sin. David did this. Because David was declared a man after God's own heart after the, after the Bathsheba incident. And we know that he didn't think right because once he was, didn't go to war, his first sin was didn't go where he was supposed to go and do what he was supposed to do. And once he didn't do that, he was free game for Satan. And so Satan got him on that, that rooftop. You think it was a coincidence 
that Satan got him on the rooftop at the same time that beautiful woman was bathing? Satan had it all orchestrated out because he knew that once David didn't do what he was told to do, once he had that sin of omission in his life, that gave Satan a handle in the life of David as it does to us. We're called to do something. We're told to do something. We don't do it. Well, all we do is give Satan an entree into our lives. When we hold on to unforgiveness, when we harbor our jealousy, when we harbor our pride, it controls us. It corrupts us. And look, it consumes us. Have you ever witnessed someone? Have you ever witnessed someone who really had it bad for somebody else? And when you, every time you're around them, all you hear about is that person that they have such ill will against because they can't wait to open their mouth and tell you the latest part. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now let's get a witness. You see, the truth is, it will, it will consume you. Everything about Saul's life was focused on David, even to his kids. And I just want to say, animosity is this thing that's easy to hide. You can bury it deep in the ground, but you know what? It goes off so easy. If you just put a toe on it, it'll explode and you won't be recognizable. The sad things for me is what's come next. What comes next? What's the outcome? What is the outcome for and from animosity? I want to make a statement, and you maybe not understand it, but here's what I will say to you. Every thought, excuse me, every attitude, every action, every deed in our lives, gives birth to something larger. Every attitude, every action, every deed in our lives gives birth to something bigger. Now, when you think about what we do now, we just tend to think in the here and now instead of the long term. But what we do, even in this service, how we respond to this message in this service has far-reaching effects into the future. How we respond every Sunday when we come to the Lord's house has far-reaching effects into the future. And when we hear from God and He begins to, begins to nudge in our heart to get rid of some sin in our lives and we refuse to, what happens is that, you know, it's kind of like a goth shot, Michael. It's kind of like a goth shot. You know, when we hit that teddy, when we hit that drive, and we, and we try to hit it right down that aisleway, and we pull it over here, we think, that's oh, a bad shot. But if we really knew the fraction of an inch that, w- that w- has to go wild right here to go bad down there, it would frighten us. We'd think we never could play golf. Because, you see, the further you get away from an event, the larger it becomes. I see two, two outcomes are two dimensions of outcome. The first outcome is what I'll call the personal effect. There are some things that when we hold animosity in our hearts, that's going to that's gonna happen. I suggest three things that will happen to you and me. It's not up there. You're going to have to listen. It's not up there. Three things that will happen 
to the person, that, to me, you, or anybody who carries animosity in their heart, first of all, will become divisive. And the reason is, is because misery loves company. If you carry an animus in your heart and you're a child of God, all of a sudden you have no fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And what happens is that, is that animus wells up so much that I, if, if I'm holding it in my heart, I can't stand for, if I got something against Michael, I can't stand for anything to go right in Michael's life. And I'm going to go to his mother-in-law and go, you know, you're a mother-in-law. Don't you be loving on that boy. Here's the truth. You leave him alone because, you know, he is a sorry old good so-and-so. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You see, misery loves company, and we become divisive when, we, when we're holding that and harboring that sin, that animus in our hearts. And we'll become divisive because we want everything to be as messed up as we are. The second thing, not only will we become divisive, we'll become deceptive. And we see this in the life of Saul. Time after time after time in these 30 verses, we see Saul being deceptive, living a lie. You see, you see it's kind of like in modern day, the person that takes the little bit of information and makes a big old story from it. Have you ever seen that happen? Better than not, better than knowing the facts, I can make it up. <coughs> Excuse me. And I would suggest to us that when we're locked up with animosity in our heart and we've become divisive and deceptive, that we will do everything we can to mask what we're really about. We'll try to talk the spiritual terms. We'll try to use the Bible to our, only to our advantage. But just remember, people are hearing us when we talk. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. personal effect is that he become, we become divisive, we become deceptive, and we become destructive. We live in a win-lose society. For some reason, there's always, there's always got to be a declared winner and declared loser. Seems to me in the family of God and for the people of God, when there has to be a declared winner and a declared loser, that everybody loses. The personal effect as bad as the personal effect is, as horrible as it impacts the local church, I think the collective impact is even worse. You see, when we, become, when we hold animus in our hearts, as a believer in Jesus Christ, it not only affects us. We're a part of a body. Amen? I'm going to try that again. We're part of a body. We're part of a family. And if we're part of a body and a family, whatever we do affects everybody else. But listen, it doesn't just stop in the church. Whatever we do in the church affects the world. Because they'll never hear the good news as long as we're locked up in sin and we're locked up uh, hating one another. We're locked up in animosity. And the Bible teaches us this. 
Let me just give you four things to think about. It's not up there. You're going to have to write it down. And I'm going to try to start from the largest and get it back to the smallest. The first thing that happens, I mean, the first thing I'll bring to your attention is that when believers live with animus in their life, we will discover shattered societies. This society was founded on the Word of God. And because this country has seemingly not seen living proof of God's Word lived out in the lives of church members, it is crumbling at its very foundation. Who would have thought, folks older than me, who would ever thought that we would put a judge on the Supreme Court who's openly homosexual? Who would ever thought that there'd be a ruling from our Supreme Court that limits religious freedom? You see, the truth is, you can track it on down from what's happened up there, what's happened in the churches and the communities. Our society is getting shattered, and you know how we know that? It's because our, our young folks, our young folks are being raised as spoiled brats. They expect everything and willing to give nothing. Now, they didn't learn that by rote. I'm afraid they learned it from us baby boomers. When we left, when we left our roots, our society, I believe, is shattered. And I think that we can trace it right back to here. Second thing that I'd suggest to you, not only, not only shattered societies, but Crushed churches. Crushed churches. Consider this in your, in your heart. How many churches do you know that not by man's standards but by God's standards are really doing well today? Now here's what I'm telling you. When I ask a question like that, it's, ooh, ooh, I know one. Well, big deal. You know one? Well, for everyone that we can say that, that's actually healthy or meeting, their, or meeting their mission, you know what's happening? I can give you 300 that are not doing well because churches are fighting and splitting and on the cusp of dissolving over superfluous things. It's just things that don't mean a hill of beans. Mainline churches, that would be Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Pentecostals, are all white-headed. Because somehow we have had a disconnect with our younger generation. Our threshold of pain is, uh, is met, and all of a sudden, it's not important anymore. You know, have you looked around at us on Sunday morning? I mean, this was all love in my heart. Have you looked around on Sunday morning? If we don't get busy about reaching some young people, this church won't be here in 15 years. And then when I go, when I think further about crushed churches, how many churches have been crushed by internal squabble, by pastor and staff failure? And we've let that, and we've let those hurts control. We've let those hurts control our thinking. We've let those church hurt, uh, 
Let those hurts stay with us. We can't turn loose of them. And all the while, millions of people outside the church are longing to hear the good news. I like what Sammy Gilbert says. Mark it down. Write it in your Bible. It's only good news if you hear it in time. Crush churches. Okay, do you see how we're moving down from the society to the church? Now watch this. Fractured families. Fractured families. The family, the home, is the first cog in the societal change. In the societal chain. And it is being decimated today. For every two couples that I bring to the altar, one couple will wind up in front of a judge. The last statistics I read, 40% of young people in America grow up in a fatherless home. I read a, I read a scary statistic today. Teenagers between 15, or, or young people between 15 and 24 years old, suicide is the fourth leading cause of death. You want me to scare you further? Among children between 10 and 14, excuse me, between 15 and 24, suicide is the third cause of death. Between children 10 and 14, it is the fourth cause of death. You realize that tells us at 10 years old, at 10 years old, Kids are getting so disillusioned with what they're not seeing and the slippery slope of our society that they're ending their lives. And all the while, our families are going down the tubes. And all of this is predicated. All those three, the the, uh, shattered societies, the crushed churches, the fractured families are all a result of ruptured relationships. Just think with me just a second. I want you to think back, back over your life. Think about where you are right now and back over your life. And then settle in your life right now. How many people have a deep knowledge of you? Of you. How many people can talk to you in terms that will correct you without getting slapped? How many people in your life do you fully trust enough to tell them about the stuff that you don't tell everybody? Hello? You see, we have tried to go it as a lone ranger because so many times we have trusted people and they've let us down. May I just give you a hint about something? That is sad, but the truth is, as many people as have let you down, you've let down. It's our fallen nature. And we don't erase somebody. We try to reconnect and reestablish a relationship. That's what God put us here to do. I suggest, I submit, that one of the great sins of the church today 
is that we hang on to and harbor ill will for things that went on yesterday, last year, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, or the really worst, we can't even remember when. We just got this grudge. And we hang on to it because it keeps us warm at night. I heard Jack Taylor say, Many years ago, it was the week that I proposed to Miss Deborah. I heard him say, revival moves in on the avenue of right relationships. So, now that I've given us the bad news, the origin, the operation, and the outcome, what about the overcoming? How do we overcome? If I have animus in my heart, if I'm a victim, if I am a, a, a carrier of this ugly, ugly disease, it seems to me we have two choices based on Scripture. We can either succumb or we can overcome. We can either succumb and give the devil his victory or we can overcome in the power of the Lord. When I, one of my favorite verses, and I know why it is, because one of the first sermons I developed and preached was on this passage. Quoted it from the King James last night for the men, but I want to read it for you. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says this. Test yourself to see if you were in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not know, recognize for yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? How do we overcome? I'm going to give you just three little snippets that I think I've, I studied and prayed, knew what I wanted to say, and I just want to share them with you. They may help you. I think they help me. First of all, recognize. Don't rationalize. What are you saying, Brother Jerry? What I want to share with you is that you need to get a spiritual shovel and dig down to that landmine if there's any possibility that animosity is down there. Dig down to that landmine and unearth it. And don't rationalize out. It's deep enough. It's far enough in the past. I've had these feelings and it's, and it's okay. Animosity is not a fruit of the Spirit. Better stated, it's a, it's a fruit of the enemy. You have to recognize you had it. If we don't admit it, we can't be cured of it. The second thing that I would suggest to you is deal with it. Don't dismiss it. Deal with it. I'm, I've said this a number of times tonight because I haven't wanted this message to be a beat-up, but I did want it to be very pointed. Sad to say, we Baptists aren't really big on dealing with our faults. We're not really big on dealing with our failures because we try to give the facade appearance to everybody that we got it all together. You know, I used to have an inferiority complex you know how I cured it, Brother Terry? I just found out I was plain, plain inferior. 
No reason to have a complex. You see, the truth is, is that how we deal with the sin in our life will give us pause for what our future will be. I'll just make you a suggestion on this. It's not going to be up there. If you root out sin, this sin in your life, first of all, don't try to root it out in somebody else's life. Not your job. If you deal, if you if you deal with the, if you find in your life that you have this or any other sin, here's my suggestion: admit it and share it with a trusted friend. Be careful. Be careful. Have I said be careful? Don't tell it to somebody you know that's going to tell it. Find a friend who loves you enough who will tell you the truth even when it hurts and share it with them and then come to terms with it. Come to terms with the fact, you know the truth is, Randy, you know what the truth is? Most of the time when we have animosity for somebody, something happened years ago, it don't matter who was wrong back then. And we're still hanging on to the fact, well, they won't admit they're wrong. And it's killing you, not them. Share it with a friend. And get that friend to help you be accountable that you not continue to have and hold that animosity. And by the way, that friend can be a real source of help as to whether you need to go further to someone and repair a relationship. And it's called being humble enough, being humble enough to admit it. And the last thing that I suggest to you is pray. Don't play. I know years ago we all sang the song here. I've sung it a number of times. a great song written by a friend of mine. Playing games at the foot of the cross. You see, the truth is, a lot of times we play games while Satan plays for keeps. If I'm holding bitterness and animosity inside, and I've been holding it there for a while, quite likely I don't possess the strength to get rid of it. Now, did you hear that? If I'm holding it inside and it's been there a while, and the longer you've held it inside, the deeper it is and the harder it is to root out, just like a root in your backyard. It is hard to root out that, that root of bitterness, but it's worth it. We bring, come to God in our weakness and say, I can't. And He'll say, you know, I know you can't. Never said you could. And then He'll smile and say, I can. I've always said I would, if you'll let me. There is no biblical reason There is no biblical permission to hold on to or harbor animosity in our hearts. In fact, when you read this book, the preponderance of evidence is that to possess such a feeling is a sin. And the longer we keep it, the deeper it is. And here's the last thought based on that scripture. When animosity comes in, the Holy Spirit of God goes out. Let it not be so.